Our third reading this morning comes to us from Luke's biography of Jesus. We'll be reading in chapter 19. Listen for God's word to you. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole, or down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in On every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was at a conference this week and it was at a. It's turned off. You're right. All right. So I was at a conference this week, and um, it was uh, at a gigantic church. I think you could drop our entire campus into their main area. And um, uh, the part I admired most of all was they had a confidence display, which means there's a little monitor up in the front the pastor could peek at when he forgot what he was doing. Um, so, So... Um, the last time I had a, a message like today's, which is going to have a lot of slides, um, I kind of got lost. And once I get lost, then so does uh, uh, Douglas back there. So um, today I have a confidence display, the old school style. So, um, so uh, <coughs> this is, as you may have heard, it is Palm Sunday. It is the occasion in the life of the church when we remember... Whatever it was Jesus did that day. What, what did Jesus do that day? What, what is the significance of what, I mean, we know what he did, right? He, he got on a donkey that he borrowed from somebody else and he rode into town and the crowds threw the palms on the, on the ground and the cloaks and so forth. We know what he did, but what was he doing? I mean, what was the purpose of Palm Sunday? What did it achieve? Why is it mentioned in all four of the biographies of Jesus? See, they all mention it, but none of them interpret it. None of them say, here's why he did this. It's left to us to figure it out. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell us what 
happened that day in Jerusalem. Well, I learned a trick many years ago. When I don't know why something happened, I turn to experts. So I went to a lot of Bibles this week and commentaries trying to figure out exactly what it was that happened on Palm Sunday. And as I did, I was reminded of of something that happened years ago. Years ago, when I was first considering Christianity, I was not yet a believer, but I had found this church that uh, welcomed, um, certainly tolerated, but more than tolerated, it welcomed a non-believer in its midst. They let me participate in Sunday worship, and they let me um, they let me be part of uh, Bible studies. Can you turn that down? It's echoing for me. Can you just turn down the volume a little bit? Thank you. So, um, so they. they um, they let me participate in Bible studies, even though they knew I was a non-believer, because I wanted to, to figure out whether or not I could become a believer. And they said, well, a Bible study would be a good place to start that out. So I did. And eventually I did become a believer. But I'm so grateful for that church because they they let me participate before I believed in Jesus. And that was a great thing. And I hope every church is as welcoming to non-believers as that one was. And in that, I learned an important lesson about Bible study from a man named John Stevens, because I was doing the same thing. Uh, we were studying something, and I've discovered in Bible studies there's two things that will cause everybody in the room to fall silent. One is when no one knows what the passage means, and the other is when everybody knows exactly what it means, and it would require making adjustments in their life, right? So, so one of them, we just kind of... Mm, beats me. And the other one is we actually are puzzled, and we don't know what what that passage means. And this was one of the latter kind. It was one where genuinely everybody was stumped. And finally, after the, you know, we're hearing the crickets for a minute or two, um, uh, I finally peeked down at the bottom of my Bible. Let me show you what my Bible looked like in those days. I've got a one that's not as heavy now. But I had a Bible like this, great big study Bible, and it looked like this, and it had all millions of words in it. So, um, I said, well, I have a footnote in my Bible that says, and then whatever the answer was. So that, yeah, that's an example of what it looks like. So I said, I said, I have a footnote in my Bible, and it tells me the answer is such and such. And John smiled at me, and he said, the footnotes aren't inspired. And, <laughs> what, what he meant was this. This is, this, you saw the, the picture a second ago, what the, what the Bible looked like. So what John was talking about is the bottom part. You see there's like a yellow stripe across it. And he said, the, the interpretive notes, the next slide shows, uh, those are the interpretive notes or study helps. He says those are not inspired. But really, he meant more than that. He meant pretty much everything on that page. For example, he also meant the um, the cross references. This Bible has got some cross references. You want to find out where something is. Where did Jesus say that thing that's kind of like this? You can go look in the cross references. He said those aren't inspired. They're helpful. They're helpful if you want to find that, but they're not inspired. So he said not the cross references either. He, uh, what else is not inspired? The chapter divisions. The chapter divisions were invented by a man named Robert Langton in 1227. Prior to that, there weren't chapter divisions in the New Testament and in large parts of the Old Testament as well. There weren't any kind of break between chapters. And mostly he got it in a good place. What? Go ahead and say it. It's off? Okay, well, there we go. Um, battery problem. Okay, so uh, chapter divisions, uh, 1227, um, and verse divisions. Verse divisions were added even later. Verse divisions came in 1560 by a man named Robert Estian in Geneva. So what does that leave? 
What's left is the inspired... Uh, wait, I'm sorry. There's still one more thing. Text headings. Text headings. They also are not inspired. They're helpful. They help you navigate a page. And where's that story? Right? I've got them in this Bible. So what's left is the part that's actually inspired. And that's the place we're supposed to look for answers. So that's all a lead up, okay? If some of you have Bibles, Bibles with more than that, that's great. So do I, um, as you'll see. But let me ask you this question. What happened on Palm Sunday? What happened at that, at that thing we celebrate on Palm Sunday? When Jesus wrote in, what did happen? Well, you might be tempted to look at your Bible and see what the heading tells you. So I did that. Let's check the headings. So I looked at six Bibles for you. Here are six Bibles. And it's hard to see, but I'll show them to you. Um, I know it's small print. All right. It says, The Triumphal Entry. The Triumphal Entry. The Triumphal Entry. Jesus' Triumphal Entry into Jerusalem. The Triumphal Entry and Jesus' Triumphal Entry. Triumphant Entry. So what happened on Palm Sunday? (laughs) All right. I've got you exactly where I want you. You're totally confused. You see what the Bibles tell you. But that's not inspired, right? So what did happen? Well, it would help us to understand better whether it was a triumphal entry if we knew more about triumphs. But in the meantime, let me show you, there are dissenting positions. So the next next slide, um, here's some other Bibles. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Jesus comes as king. Jesus comes as king. So at least four Bibles I consulted say that it was actually not a triumphal entry. And there's a couple more. I looked at 15 in total. I'll stop soon. So procession into Jerusalem. (laughs) Procession into Jerusalem. This one right here, very long. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Okay, very helpful. And then God's personal visit. But my favorite is the next one. (laughs) They didn't give us a heading. Good luck luck finding anything in that Bible. So... (laughs) So I show you all that because there is disagreement. If you open up your Bible and it says Jesus' triumphal entry, take all the headings with a grain of salt because they're not inspired. What I want to do is I want to talk about what a triumph is because then we'll understand what Jesus did. What Jesus did is he made an arrival. I think the next slide. Jesus made an arrival, not a triumph. And I'm going to talk about that. But first I want to explain how you can tell them apart because they're both parades. They're parades that are held for big shots. But I want to start by showing you what a triumph looks like. Luckily, somebody took a picture of one. So our next picture is, um, let's see, this is the Arch of Titus. Okay, The Arch of Titus in Rome, it was built in 82 AD by Titus's little brother, Domitian. Titus had been the emperor, and when he died, his brother took over, and he built this, uh, this arch to commemorate his brother's great victories. So uh, this is my family um, uh, for scale. Uh, you see the... Um, uh, this is this arch is actually the model of the Arc de Triomphe in in France, but it's much smaller. It's 50 feet tall, and I was able to fit it into two pictures. I think the next one shows the. So you see, I knit them together so you can see how big it is. And it used to be prettier on the front. Uh, the next picture shows uh, it used to have statues and so forth on the front, but during the Middle Ages they incorporated it into the wall around uh, Rome, and so it lost. It, back up, please. Uh, so it lost all of its art um, on the front and back and sides. But the inside, the statue was stayed in place. And on the north face of the of the inner arch, you see the the next picture. So here it is. This is the triumph of Titus and Vespasian. Titus was the emperor before Domitian. Vespasian was his dad. So those three emperors are called the Flavian emperors. 
because they were from the family of Flavius. All right, the next picture shows the detail. So that's Titus there riding in the in the in, the, in his triumph. He's got um, the horses and the people running around parading and everything. And then behind him, uh, there's um, uh, the goddess Victoria. She was the Roman goddess of guess what? Victory, very good. You're, see, you're, you're classic scholars. Now, she was known to the Greeks by a different name. She was called Nike. So there she is. Um, the, uh, but the but the Romans but the Romans called her Victoria. So um, so the point of all that is to show you a picture of my family. No, the point <laughs> the point of that of that kind of historical dialogue there is to show you the point of a triumph is something that has already happened. Triumphs look backwards. Triumphs say something happened and we're going to throw a party for the big shot who made it happen. A triumph always looks backward, but an arrival looks forward. Let me show you some pictures of an arrival. I think the next slide, yeah. So some of you saw this happen this this week. So uh what happened this week? The president of China showed up where? Right here in little old Anchorage, right? So um, he got down out of the plane, and what happened then? Well, the next picture shows you. He was met at the plane, not when he got to his hotel, not when he came to the, the legislative affairs office or whatever. He was met at the airport because he's a big shot, and this is what you do for big shots. You have an arrival. So you see uh, there's the governor there, and then somebody's got some flowers, and uh, they welcome him. Because they're, they want to talk about the future. They don't want to talk about anything he did in the past. They want to talk about the future. Relations between Alaska and China, how that's going to affect commerce and trade and all the rest of that stuff. So that's what they're doing. That's what those handshakes are all about, is they're talking about the future. A triumph looks backwards, but an arrival looks forward. So what I want to do in the remaining time, and maybe go over... Um, it's, it's, I want to talk about this particular arrival because so far all we've done is understood what the people in the crowd already knew, right? But we're kind of caught up to people in the first century now. And we understand the, the symbols and the, the terminology. But what did this particular arrival mean? So if you've got the scriptures in front of you, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at this passage. So uh, it says Jesus, um, well, mine has a heading. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. So... Um, Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, said what? Well, we'll come back to that. Just hang on to that. Jesus just said something, and we'll come back to it. It says, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and then he sent his disciples. He commissioned his disciples, go get me that donkey in the village over there. And so they go, and they they um, they get there. Now, <laughs> there's a story I, I love. Um, it's an imaginative, speculative story. Jim Bergen tells a story about... Um, a man who is in that village, and he's praying. He's saying, God, I have to know if you're real. Show me a sign today, Lord. Just let me know I can trust you. Let me know I can lean my life against your promises. Please, Lord, I'll do anything you ask. Just let me know you're real. And then his wife comes in and says, Honey, what are those guys doing out in the lawn? And he goes, Can't you see I'm praying? Can I just get a few minutes to talk to God? She goes, Okay, but it looks like they're stealing your donkey. And so he goes outside and he says, what's up with the donkey? And they say, the Lord needs it. And I love that story, but it's speculative. It doesn't tell us, you know, it's not in the Bible. But if there wasn't a man in Bethany who was wondering about his own donkey, there was a huge crowd of the people of Judea 
who were making that same prayer. They'd been making that prayer for 600 years because for 600 years, Judea, the land of the, the, the land of the Jews, Judea, had been under foreign occupation. First it was the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Seleucid Empire, and finally the Romans. They haven't been really an independent country more than about a couple of decades during all that time. For 600 years, they've been a pawn in this great global um, game of chess between the different empires. But God had promised King David a thousand years before. He said, there would be a king who would sit on your throne. And they're going... God, can I trust you? Can we believe you? Can we lean our lives against the promises you've made? That's the question everybody in that country is wondering. Can I trust God? Is there ever going to be a relief? Are we ever going to have our own king again? But God had spoken through the prophets. God had given them a hint. God had said, yes, I remember my promises, and I want you to watch for this sign. Through the prophet Zechariah, he said, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the crowd knew to watch for that sign. And so when Jesus did this obscure thing with the donkey, go get me a donkey, untie it, bring it back, all that stuff, Jesus is setting things up so the crowd will say, Oh my goodness, it's that sign. It's the sign we were told to watch for. The king has arrived. And they knew it because they began chanting Psalm 118. So uh, Luke quotes it for us. He says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Except that's not what Psalm 118 says. Psalm 118 says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But the crowd knew what was going on. They recognized the sign. And they said, It's the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So, if you're filling in the blanks, the first point is this. Jesus Christ translates King Jesus. If I got to wave my magic wand and change all the Bibles in the world, that would be the one change I would make. Because Christ and Messiah, they mean the same thing, but they're these weird foreign words that, what does that even mean, right? So, I would change them all to say that, King Jesus. Maybe once in a while there'd be a little footnote that said, or Christ. Jesus Christ means King Jesus. And Palm Sunday remembers his arrival in Jerusalem. See, all this time, Jesus has been telling people, the kingdom of God has come near. And now he says, I've arrived. I'm going to go take my throne. And the crowd is ecstatic. Why are they ecstatic? Because kings liberate captives. What is it that the crowd is, is shouting? They're saying, Lord, save us. They say, the next slide, Lord, save us. Hoshana. The, the word in Aramaic for save us is Hoshana. They're saying, Lord, save us. We are sick and tired of being a puppet in the hands of these foreign empires. We're so tired of the Romans and the Seleucids and the Babylonians and the Persians. Lord, save us. Set us free from the captivity your people have endured for hundreds and hundreds of years. Lord, save us. Kings liberate captives. But what else do kings do? Well, remember... Our passage begins after Jesus said this. After Jesus said this, what is this? Well, if you go back and read it, Jesus had just told a parable to some people. He said there was a man who went off to acquire royal power. And while he was away, he gave ten minutes to each of his servants and said, work with this while I'm gone. And then when he came back as a king, next slide, 
When he came back, they each told him what they'd done. And to the ones who had traded and made money with it, he said, Well, good, my, well done, my good servant, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. What kings do is they reward faithful service. They say, I've wondered while I was away, who could I trust? And now I know. And so I'm going to give you increasing authority. So what is it that kings do? This is number two in the outline. Number two is the king rewards faithful servants and the the Messiah liberates captives and rewards faithful servants. So. Before we go on, just stop and think. Which of those applies to you? See, Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. He arrived in Jerusalem to say the kingdom is no longer near you. The kingdom has arrived. What holds you captive? Are you a captive of fear? Are you anxious? Do you sleep well at night? What's going on with your finances? What's going on with your relationships? What's going on with your addictions? Jesus came to liberate the captives. That's why we pray Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Because kings liberate captives. And what area of responsibility has Jesus given you? What are the ten minutes that he has assigned you to use until he comes again? Because kings, when they return, reward faithful service. Give that some thought. I want to continue. Our reading concludes this way. It says, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And then he says this. He says, if you only knew what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. You know, I showed you the north side of the Arch of Titus. You saw it a moment ago. Here it is again. That's the triumph of Titus and Vespasian. What was the triumph held for? Well, on the south side, you see the picture. This is what happened that they threw a triumph for. In 71 AD, they had this triumph because in 66, some people in the Holy Land said, I'm sick and tired of Romans. Let's throw off their governorship. Let's get rid of them. And they threw out the Romans. But a nearby general named Vespasian was sent to put an end to it. So he besieged the city. He set up ramparts all around it. He hemmed it in on every side. And he was ready to take the city when it fell. But then something happened in Rome. The emperor Nero committed suicide, and there was a power struggle to see who would replace him. So Vespasian went back to be to get in on the action, and when the dust was cleared, Vespasian was the emperor. He left his son Titus in Jerusalem to finish the work of besieging Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem fell, not one stone was left on another. This triumph involved a 100,000 captives. They brought a 100,000 people from Israel to Rome. And all the gold, they got so much gold, they were able to build something called the Flavian Amphitheater. Some of you may have seen it before. It's called the Colosseum. It's the world's biggest amphitheater. And it was built with the loot from the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus said, if only you knew what would bring you peace but it's hid from your eyes. That's what a worldly triumph is like. 
But the scriptures tell us that Jesus had a triumph too. On Palm Sunday, there was an arrival. But later that week, there was a triumph. We read in the book of Colossians. Paul says this. He says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He says, far from grabbing all the loot, he canceled the debt. And he goes on to say, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, the debt. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, the things that held us captive, the things that made us powerless to resist sin, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The triumph of Jesus was when he took the powers and the authorities that held us captive and brought them behind him as captives after he freed us. Jesus came that day as the king to inaugurate the new kingdom of God. He liberates captives. He has the power to liberate you from the powers and the authorities that have held you captive. And he entrusts to each of us a responsibility. He entrusts to the church the great commission to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. And he will come again. See, the arrival was only the first of two arrivals. There's another arrival coming soon. Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his triumph took place between the two arrivals. And the question for us is, what will we do now during those two arrivals, that gap between the two arrivals? Will we live in Jesus' triumph? Will we be captive or will we be freed? And will we use the things he has entrusted us in a way that brings him glory and that he will reward when he returns. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you for the opportunity to remember that Jesus fulfilled your promises. The, The signs that the prophets had warned us of and told us to be ready for, he fulfilled. Lord, we have been captive to powers and authorities, but we trust that in Christ they have all been vanquished and he leads them as captive behind him. And so, Lord, we pray you would give us the courage to step out in faith that we are no longer captives but free children. And we pray, Lord, you would give us the wisdom and the courage to to use the things you've assigned us so that we can be good and faithful servants. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.